1: Bring in show music, please.
0: This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, COVID-19 cases rising in Europe, and so is public unrest. Cases also rising here. Staying safe this holiday week with Dr. Scott Gottlieb.
2: The effects of the booster are pretty much immediate. So people who go out and get their boosters now, could have substantially more protection in time for even Thanksgiving.
0: Vaxed, boosted, and ready for your holiday travel? So are about four million other people. Flight Attendance Union Leader Sarah Nelson, can the airlines handle the volume?
3: There are more flight attendants per flight hour than there were pre-pandemic. So we do have more staff than we had before, but it's an issue of how the airlines were forecasting. And previously, they were counting on people picking up those trips and those overtime hours, and that is just not happening today.
0: Plus, Activision, a monster beverage deal, and debating the next Fed head. It's Monday, November 22nd, 2021. SquawkPod begins right now.
3: Stand back you
1: buy in 3, 2, 1, cue please.
0: Good morning everybody.
4: Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. If you want a reason to be optimistic for the holiday shortened week, you can check out these stats from Bespoke Investment Group. Get this. Since 1945, the S&P has averaged a gain of 0.6% for the entire holiday week. The best returns have come on Wednesday and then on Black Friday with the only decline over that period coming on Monday. But if you look more recently, the gains have shifted to Mondays with small declines on Tuesday and then rallies once again on Wednesdays and Fridays.
5: Among uh, this week's stories to watch uh, the Fed, President Biden's expected to announce uh, whether he will renominate uh, Chair Jay Powell for a second term at the helm of the central bank. He's scheduled to deliver remarks about the economy tomorrow. So that may be something to pay attention to at the White House. Uh, the Washington Post reports the president uh, made comments that were highly complimentary of Powell uh, during a meeting with senators last week. The other name, of course, said to me in the running, current governor, Lyle Brainerd.
4: What do you guys think is actually happening with this? Because The
1: parlor game continues. I think yeah. that he would like Lyle Brainerd if he could, and he'll take Powell if he has to. Don't you think?
4: Yeah, I mean, look, you need every one of the Democratic votes if you're going to put Lyle Brainerd there, because you're not going to get Republicans to vote for her. Um, you have... At this point, Senator Tester speaking out more about how he is in favor of Powell. You've also heard from Joe Manchin saying some things like that. If they don't have all 50 votes, they can't do it. And I know this is one of those splits between the progressives and, and, and the moderates, but the moderates seem like they have the upper hand because you're not gonna get help from the other side of the aisle.
5: I mean, I figure it'll be Powell, but I would be gratifying because it, in my eyes, it'd be the first time he's actually said no to the far left. Which, if he if he if he doesn't have the, uh, you know, if the people around him and and the president himself decide um, <laughs> to pick Lyle Brainerd, it it would be in keeping with everything that we've seen. So if I'd get, it would be, I think I'd be very cynical about it if he if he did pick her.
4: There was some new things that I heard kind of floated this morning that Janet Yellen would like to see continuity there as well. With I don't Powell, know if that right? means if that's Powell that she wants indicated right. there. It's just. If you were reading kind of the, the tea leaves last week, based on the trial balloons they were sending up, and then reading it this week, I would say it's shifted back towards Powell. Last week it sounded more like Leo Brainerd, but if they don't have the votes, they don't have the votes.
5: But in a purely us versus them, which is what we've seen, you know, for the past nine months, ten months, whatever it is, us versus them, you put a Democrat in. You got a chance to put a Democrat in, you'd put a Democrat in. Maybe oh, he won't. I, gonna, I, I would be. You know be, what
1: though? I don't. I, I don't would know be if gratified just, if he didn't. No, I, I, I know the political piece of it, Joe, but I don't think it's, it's just it all that. Is. I think there's well, you've so seen a lot of unity. Elements.
5: Seen a lot of unity since uh, like like the inauguration speech. I, I'm not I'm not
1: making this a political argument. I'm just suggesting I think he all would poly, love to have a woman in that role. No, I'm, look, you you can call this uh, woke washing or to wokeness or I don't know what, what what you want to describe it as. I'm saying it's not. I don't know if it's just a. Uh, to the extent that he's looking at anybody but Powell, I don't know if it's simply a, a political argument. I think that they're they're trying to they're trying to solve for a lot of things right now. And I'm not saying they're the right things to got be Got solved nothing before, to do with Bernie relative, or relative
5: or, to some of the other issues. But I'm just nothing to do with Senator with Elizabeth Warren or or. Bernie Sanders or, or that, or that well, part yeah, of the so party that are pulling that part of the with, party. Yeah. It's all
4: tied up with the, uh, look, the, the reason they have all these things colliding at the same time when they're still trying to pass this second um, bill to try and get through I, I don't know how many trillion it is at this point whether you say 1.75 or two trillion or two and a quarter trillion but that second bill that they're or trying four, to get through
5: or 4.6 according to the Washington Post
4: that's why this has become such an issue because when you have Senator Warren and a couple of the other progressives who have come out and said that they don't want him there it's how many times you need to it's the horse trading that takes place when you're trying to do all of this and, and Biden knows that because he lived in the Senate you know grew up there Um that's why it's gotten so complicated. But if you don't have all 50 votes, you can't do this.
5: And- well, it's a transformative bill. It's a lot of money. It, 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 people have said how, how big it is, and it's, it's a legacy issue for Nancy Pelosi, but it, you know, it was passed with zero Republicans, one, only one defection, and now we'll go to see in the Senate, we'll see what survives uh, in it. There's a lot of immigration issues that Manchin may not go for that are in there. Salt and, may uh, not survive it. Methane, Yeah salt is it's the 88 percent go to the top 10 percent how does how does that work but in in the big states the big states where salt is a problem salt are democrat states and the rich people that are there are democrats you know so I, democrats I forget all the are, time That's true if,
4: if you don't do anything the the salt cap goes away in 2026 anyway so they're fighting over what happens over the next right. three years um and they could probably do something in cap it even past 2026. If they don't reach agreement on it, it just goes away in 2026.
1: Authentic Brands Group now delaying its plans to go public. The company with a portfolio that includes Shaquille O'Neal, Sports Illustrated, Izod, Brooks Brothers. I mean, they've known everything these days. Barneys, New York, uh, and uh, so much more. They are selling stakes to CBC Capital Partners and HPS Investment Partners. The deal valuing Authentic Brands Group at nearly $13 billion. BlackRock is going to remain the largest shareholder in the company. After filing for its IPO over the summer, Authentic Brands Group now says it will hold off on those plans to go public until 2023 or 2024. The company's acquisition of Reebok, you might remember, expected to close... In the first quarter of 2020, and we had heard um, that, effectively, at one point, CBC had tried to buy Reebok, and that's what actually led to, led to all of this, Becky.
4: Man, that is a mismatch of brands. I forgot about Barneys New York. I forgot they own that, too.
1: They own so I mean, they've really collected up so many things over the years. Yeah. And the real question is, you know, what can you do with all of that? How, can, how much of those brands can you turn back the clock and, effectively, turn them back into what they used to be?
4: Well-known brands, but, um, but yeah, all all over the map. And energy drinks maker Monster Beverage is reportedly talking about a merger with Constellation Brands. No word on details or how far along the discussions are, but as of Friday, Monster Beverage had a market cap of about $47.3 billion. The market cap of Constellation Brands was 44200000000 billion. Coca-Cola is a major shareholder in Monster Beverage.
1: Let's talk a little uh, Activision, because um, Activision CEO Bobby Kotick reportedly, and this is a piece in The Wall Street Journal, considering stepping down, but I want to put some nuance around this because of the language here. The Wall Street Journal is saying that Kodak has told senior managers that he would consider leaving if, and this is important, if he can't fix the issues plaguing the video game giant. The journal uh, added that Kodak, who has led Activision for three decades, stopped short of saying he would step down, and that's why I want to be careful with that headline, uh, but left the possibility open if misconduct issues across the company weren't fixed, quote, with speed. Now, Kodak has faced calls to resign over how he and the company have handled problems, including allegations of sexual misconduct. The board, I should say, uh, at least thus far, continues to support him. And so we're going to keep our eyes on this uh, story. But um, I don't I don't know. I don't know. Becky, did you read this piece? I did. It felt to me that it it was it, it felt to me that they were pushing on a string a little bit. Um, it felt to me but, like
4: the sub-headline contradicted the headline, because the headline was right. Activision Blizzard CEO Bobby Kotick tells colleagues he would consider leaving if he can't fix problems. The headline right underneath that said Kotick stopped short of saying he would step down right. on a Friday meeting with executives. I, I, I like, don't believe is that
1: it? Bobby Kotick wants to step down, is seeking to step down, or, or anything of the sort. I think the real question is whether the board is going to continue to support him and whether pressure from employees or otherwise is going to, is going to make this uh, more complicated. But that... That's just a little armchair analysis from, from the outside.
5: I believe that's a, I couldn't believe Monster was worth that much. I can't believe Activision, he's, he's grown it. To, that's almost $50 billion. We've watched that uh, get sort of assembled piece by piece. Well, and it's uh, down about 16% probably.
4: over the last couple of weeks, right, too. Yeah.
5: I thought, sure, the Monster deal would have been a, I wondered, you know, calling it a merger instead of an acquisition. I can't believe, it's, it's, Similar market cap the Constellation. Yeah, that's amazing. It is. I've never. I don't know if I think I've ever had one. Do you guys drink those? I haven't. Drink those?
4: <laughs> There's a lot of Remember calories we used in to them, t- unless you drink the we light We
5: used ones. to
1: talk about this company all the time as a company that would get taken over by Coca-Cola back yeah. in the day. I want to say about ten years ago we used to report about speculation I I about guess. this company
5: constantly. Probably should have, I guess.
4: As the United States prepares for Thanksgiving travel, a number of European countries have been looking at new COVID rules and lockdowns. And those changes led to protests in Vienna, Brussels, Zurich, and Amsterdam this weekend. CNBC's Karen Cho joins us live from London. She's got a full report of the story. And um, this was in a lot of different capitals.
6: Becky, you're right. Dotted right across the map in Europe, there have been problems, but the really epicentre of the health crisis so far is Austria, which has entered its fourth national lockdown due to the current pandemic wave. People have been asked to work from home while all non-essential shops will be closed. According to the Chancellor, Alexander Schellenberg, the lockdown would run for a maximum of 20 days. The question is whether this gets extended, of course. You may recall just last week that Austria declared it would make vaccines mandatory for adults an extraordinary step. All this as many cities in Europe had been rocked by protests against expanding COVID measures. In Belgium, protesters clashed with police after tens of thousands of people gathered in a march throughout the city centre. Meanwhile, demonstrations continued for a third day in the Netherlands, following those violent scenes and dozens of arrests in Rotterdam and The Hague, with thousands more gathering in Amsterdam over the weekend. And in Italy and Rome, large crowds gathered objecting to the enforcement of COVID passes. Just worth noting though, instead of looking at Europe as one big collective at this stage, economists are just picking out various different countries because of varying vaccination rates as we talk about Austria being the epicentre of that crisis there's been a lot of COVID vaccine skepticism vaccination rates at about 65.5 percent compare that to Italy which is close to 74 percent and Portugal one of the highest in the world at about 86 percent so you're seeing various different approaches here I think in the cold hard uh, daylight today on Monday markets are just a little bit more confident about the situation playing out versus Friday where everybody was bracing for some form of demonstration and uh, rebellion over the weekend so i think at this stage there's just a bit more calm in the markets becky
4: a bit more calm in the markets i guess karen what what do you think would potentially motivate this for additional protests on this what's more likely to happen if you follow the numbers there are there more likely to be more lockdowns or more likely to be more protests that that lead to the point where people say enough is enough we've got to learn to live with this endemically
6: Well, Becky, the big one that we watch really is Germany. What takes place in that country being such a powerhouse of Europe? And there are concerns, and Friday was certainly circling the market, whether the country would go into lockdown. Now, economists think at this stage, uh, really, you'll just look at regions going into lockdown to try and navigate the health crisis. But I think that would be a big one for Europe, but also France too. And I was just in Paris on Friday talking to the industry minister, and they're hopeful that this time with vaccinations and boosters, a COVID pill from Pfizer, that this will make the difference in the fight against COVID but of course the big cities the big countries we watch very very closely the other point too is that we've all had to learn to live with COVID and that means business too so there is some hope that this time around business can navigate any fresh COVID restrictions of course on the services side that's where you see the hit when cafes restaurants bars have to close down and already we've seen a lot of European support on the monetary and fiscal side to support these economies if we start to reverse and of course we talk about where the fresh help comes from in this crisis.
0: Thank you very much. Coming up, what does a rising wave of COVID cases and possible new restrictions in Europe mean for the upcoming holiday season everywhere? Former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb joins us.
2: I think at this point we need to accept that there's a lot of breakthrough infections happening for people who, particularly people who are out a significant portion of time from their original vaccination. This is the argument for people to go out and get boosters.
0: More Squawk Pod after this.
1: And Andrew Bai.
0: You're listening to Squawk Pod. Good
1: morning, and welcome back to Squawk Box. Right here on CNBC, I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin, along with Becky Quick and Joe Kernan.
5: Vaccinated, cured, or dead—that's the warning from the German health minister as cases surge across uh, the European nation, uh, and Chancellor Angela Merkel saying uh, that the situation is worse than anything experienced so far. Uh, those comments sending the German DAX uh, lower. The situation, according to Merkel, is dramatic, and tighter curbs are needed. Uh, joining us now is Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner and a CNBC contributor. He also serves on the boards of Pfizer and Illumina. We were going to uh, initially start talking about a piece in the journal uh, talking about breakthrough threats, which I don't know if it's new, this this journal piece, uh, Dr. Scott. We'll talk about it in a second. Comment on, on the news coming out of Germany, though, first, please, and, and what's different there uh, from here, or is it?
2: Well, look, there are some differences. A lot of the spread that they're seeing right now, the dense spread is in the eastern part of the country where vaccination rates are low. So when you look at vaccination rates overall across Germany, they're pretty high, higher than the U.S., Um, but there are pockets of significant under-vaccination, particularly in the old East Germany, and that's where the spread is. Germany also hasn't had as much prior infection as the U.S., and so you have to look at the total immunity in the population, not just the vaccinated portion of the population. And when you look at the total immunity in the German population, it probably is lower than in the U.S. I'm not saying that we're impervious to spread here. And we've certainly seen dense outbreaks of Delta in specific parts of this country. But I think we're in a certain different situation than Germany right now uh, because we've endured a lot of prior waves of infection. And Germany has controlled the infection to a better extent than the prior waves. Now the Delta uh, strain is getting out of control there.
5: The continent itself, is, is, is the rest of Europe looking at the same thing that, that's happening in Germany?
2: I think to some extent um, there is there's less prior infection in different countries in Europe, not the U.K. And the U.K. is having a better experience right now. But when you look at countries like France and Italy, um, they've probably endured less prior infection. At least France has. Uh, it's hard to tell with Italy because of that dense first wave and how pervasive it was. It was a point time we, which we didn't have a lot of testing. But there is a lot of immunity in the U.S. population. CDC's estimate probably two weeks ago was around 80 percent of the U.S. population has some form of immunity, either through partial or complete vaccination or prior infection. Uh, I don't think the European rates are anything approaching that. And that was about two weeks ago. That was an old estimate from CDC two or three weeks ago. It's probably much higher at this point, given the extensive spread of Delta over the intervening time period. And the continued vaccination, we're picking up about one percent every two or three days of the U.S. population getting vaccinated.
5: So 79%, we're moving to this country here, we're talking about South South Carolina specifically because we've got spotty data for all these breakthroughs and and, uh, ICUs, hospitals, all that. But 79% of the people that have the breakthrough infections uh, had at least one existing health condition, diabetes, kidney, uh, just all the usual uh, things that you know are associated with with an increased uh, risk. Uh, and severely ill patients, 88%. Most are elderly, over 65 uh, in terms of people that, that seem to be uh, possibly going to be affected by a breakthrough case. And don't we know this? It's a vaccine. It's not a therapeutic. It's, it's totally dependent on whether you have a, a, a real, a, an immune system that can handle um, you know, the introduction of the antigen from the vaccine and then do what's necessary to protect you from the disease. It's, it's, the onus is on the person's immune system.
2: Well, look, I think at this point, we need to accept that there's a lot of breakthrough infections happening for people who particularly people who are out a significant portion of time from their original vaccination. And there are people out almost a year at this point or coming up on a year, people who were vaccinated back in January, December and January. Um, So there's probably more infection happening among the vaccinated population, more spread happening in that population, the unboosted portion of that population, than what we're picking up because we're just not systematically tracking this. There's going to be retrospective studies that identify this, but we're not doing a good job of tracking this in real time. And this is the argument for people to go out and get boosters. The effect of the boosters is almost immediate. The um, original premise of the vaccine in terms of the 95% protection is restored. And the final point here is that I also think we're not making effective use of the antibody drugs for people who are truly vulnerable, uh, who are immunocompromised, who we know aren't going to develop a very robust immune response from the vaccine because they're on steroids or they're on uh, chemotherapy. We could be using these antibody drugs as a prophylaxis to prevent them or reduce their chances of getting an infection or getting a severe infection. I know plenty of people who are doing this. Um, sophisticated physicians who are, uh, you know, unfortunately on chemotherapy or other immunosuppressants are doing this. The, bro- the problem is it's not available to the masses. You have to be in the know to know that these drugs are available for that kind of use. Regeneron is making them available on a compassionate use basis. The FDA is currently considering an emergency use authorization, but we should be getting on the ball trying to make these available to immunocompromised patients.
1: For the CDC, when rolling out the boosters across the board to say that, to not necessarily recommend that you have to get it or that even that you should get it, but that you may get it.
2: Yeah, look, they said should for 50 and above, so they've walked the age down. I think it shows the challenges that the agency has making decisive decisions in a setting of a crisis. But this also reflects a broader ambivalence in the public health community about whether these vaccines should be used as tools to prevent people from getting severe infection and hospitalization and succumbing to COVID whether they should also be used as tools to try to control and perhaps end the pandemic. And if you're in the camp that these vaccines could be effective at trying to control and maybe even end the pandemic, then you would advocate boosting younger people. If you're in the camp that these vaccines should only be used to try to prevent severe outcomes, then you're in the camp of only boosting older people because the younger people, people in their 20s or 30s who are fully vaccinated with two doses probably have more residual protection from those two doses in a 60- or 70-year-old, and they were at lower risk to begin with from a bad outcome from COVID. You know, so it depends on where you break down, and you're seeing that debate get reflected and play out in the CDC's sort of stuttering approach to how they've rolled out the recommendations around the boosters. They've kind of, you know, incrementally towed into this.
4: You know, Scott, that's that's a big part of the problem. That's the question I was going to ask, too, is, We're telling people now, just before Thanksgiving, to go ahead and get it. We've kind of missed the boat. We've missed the idea that there's been a pickup in this. And if you're in the camp that says, look, we don't want to give this to younger people because we don't think it's necessary, we're just trying to prevent hospitalizations, okay, then you should also be in the camp that says those people who are younger should be taking protection so they're not spreading it. But you can't be in both camps unless you just, it's completely illogical. Either you think you should get boosted so you can go out and go back to your life as normal, or you think, okay, don't worry about it at all. I don't get it.
2: Yeah, look, these are the challenges. We need to make these decisions at a population level, and it's hard to sort of parse the population um, by by specific age camps. The administration, the political leadership in the administration, seems to be firmly in the camp that these vaccines should be more broadly used to try to bring an end to this pandemic. Uh, so I think that they're in favor of having broad eligibility and and simple a simple construct. We didn't really see that from CDC. I mean, it's simpler than where it was before. But as, as Andrew pointed out, the, the should is only for 50 um, and above. We didn't completely miss the window. We're late to this for sure. And you're seeing what's happening in Israel with the dramatically declining case rates because they got their population boosted. We still have an opportunity to do it because the effects of the booster are, are pretty much immediate. I mean, the data on the decline in clinical cases is about after a week. But if you look at the antibody response, it's almost immediate. So people who go out and get their boosters now could have substantially more protection in time for even Thanksgiving. And also the effect of the first dose in children is much more robust than the effect of the first dose in an adult. So even if you get your child a first dose right now, they're going to have more immune protection than a comparable adult would just from that first dose. So There's still opportunity to get more immunity in the population that could be protective in time for the holidays. Scott, is there any
5: possibility that the immune system could eventually say, "Okay, I got it? I got got it, you you know, I need to be ready for this. Uh, I mean, is there a fourth, is there, will the third one be, will you be okay two years from now having the third booster, or is there going to be a fourth booster? Is it possible for the immune system to say, okay, you, you know, my T cells, I've seen this enough, you don't need to give me any more boosters?
2: Yeah, look, the, the flu vaccine lasts six months. Um, I think this vaccine is going to last substantially longer than that. We don't know what the durability is going to be after this third dose. Uh, it's probably going to be different for people of different ages. And then you run into the complexity. Do you have different recommendations for older people versus younger people? I suspect that younger people are going to have a more durable response from this third dose than older individuals. This may well become an annual vaccine, at least for some portion of the population, And then you run into the question that Becky raised. Do you have a broad recommendation that it's just an annual vaccine for the simplicity of administering it? These are going to be questions that we have to get worked out and that CDC is ultimately going to have to make a policy call on. But first, we're going to have to see what the durability is from this third dose. We don't know if I had, we will have data coming out of Israel. We'll start to see whether or not there are declines in the immune protection, at least in the antibody response. We don't we don't know what the cellular immunity, how durable that's going to be. You know, if I had to guess, I think it's going to be highly variable. Younger people are going to have a much more durable response than older people. And for some portion of the population, older individuals, immunocompromised people, this may well become something that's done on an annualized basis.
1: Hey, Scott, can you just explain, uh, especially for those in the audience that may be skeptical about vaccines, in terms of this idea of you're fully vaccinated after two doses? And there's a lot of people who think I took the two doses, I'm fully vaccinated. What the third dose does to, to the idea that you could even get it and why that that's important? Because I've been having lots of conversations with people, I'll be honest, who, who don't seem to be able to put those two ideas together, but maybe you're the doctor.
2: Look, we've now seen from multiple good studies declining immune protection over time, particularly more pronounced in older individuals and men. Uh, you had the study out of Israel in July. You had the ICAT study in the U.S. in September the New York State study in October, the VA study in October, the, the Kaiser study that came out, I think, in November. And then there were a couple of studies out of England all showing the same thing, that the, the residual protection against symptomatic disease is somewhere between 40 to 70 percent in these different studies after about six months. So we know that there is declining immune protection. The data on the booster on the third dose is pretty convincing that you restore the original premise of the vaccine. So you have 95%, 96% protection against infection when you compare someone who has three doses versus someone who has two doses. Now, if you imputed that the person with two doses probably had about 50% of their residual protection against symptomatic disease, then the three doses is even more protective if you're comparing them against someone who's unvaccinated. Okay. All right, Uh, Dr. Gottlieb, thanks.
0: Cheese will be next. Next on Squawk Pod, holiday travel ramps up and so does the holiday imbibing, which could be a turbulent combo for your Thanksgiving flight. Sarah Nelson, president of the Association of Flight Attendants, says it's going to be a long week.
3: The biggest issue that we have is the pushing of alcohol in the airport. So the concessions are trying to make money off of that alcohol and advertising to go alcohol. That is a huge problem because alcohol is the biggest contributor.
7: We'll be right back.
0: This is Squawk Pod with Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Here's Becky.
4: The nation's airports are sure to be busy this week. The TSA actually says that it expects to screen about 20 million people who plan to travel for Thanksgiving this year. So are the airlines prepared for nearly pre-pandemic passenger loads? For more on this, let's welcome Sarah Nelson. She's international president of the Association of Flight Attendants. Her union represents nearly 50,000 flight attendants at 20 different airlines. And Sarah, it's good to see you this morning. What's the answer? Are you ready?
3: I think airlines are ready. So airlines have more crew, more staff than they had pre-pandemic if you compare it to the flight hours that they're flying. now. Airlines were staffing based on a lot of overtime hours before the pandemic and uh, they have had to recognize that people are just not willing to pick up as many flights because of the conditions in the air because of the conditions during the pandemic. And they've made adjustments and they've also negotiated with us where they didn't already have incentives for holiday for working over the holidays. They've negotiated to put those in place. Um, They've also pulled back some of the flights that they were planning to uh, to run in order to meet the demand. Uh, And And so I think that we're going to see a a good holiday season, barring any major weather events.
4: Sarah, let's talk through a couple of those issues. You said people, um, flight attendants are less willing to pick up some of the overtime that they were before because of conditions in in the air. Is that because of all the air rage out there?
3: That's exactly right. So their families are saying, we don't necessarily want you putting on that uniform that has become a target and going back in. And they've really been chipped away. Uh, when they go to work with all of the constant conflict on board. And I want to be really clear, Becky, once again, this is a small group of people who are persistently creating a problem in the air. Uh, But it has been pervasive and it has been a a regular experience of crew and they're worn out. And so they're not as will not as willing to pick up those extra hours as they were before.
4: Do you feel like the airlines are doing enough? Do you feel like the government's doing enough to, to, to help and assist?
3: Well finally DOJ is starting to prosecute and FAA gave them their most egregious cases. We know that when people are getting convicted and going to jail that that is going to serve as a major deterrent. We are also working really hard to try to identify these issues on the ground working with the air marshals and FBI and local law enforcement uh, in the airports to try to uh, get those problems off of the planes. Our flight attendants tell us that 50% of the issues were identified during the boarding process or at the gate. So if we can keep those issues on the ground we're going to make a major dent in this. Um, Everybody's working really hard to try to do that and are we doing enough. Uh, the short answer, Becky, the flight attendants would say, no, make it stop. Uh, but we are continuing to work very closely with the government and um, with all of our airlines. And there is progress every single day. The biggest issue that we have is the pushing of alcohol in the airport. So the concessions are trying to make money off of that alcohol and advertising to-go alcohol. That is a huge problem. because to alcohol go is alcohol, take it on the plane? Here. yes. Well, they're not supposed to. Federal regulations say no, but they're sending the wrong messages to passengers.
4: Yeah, clearly. Uh, so, Sarah, when you started out, you said that hiring, staffing at least, is about at pre-pandemic levels if you consider the hours of, of flight time or whatever's there. Because I was going to start with that. I mean, some of the high-profile issues we've seen recently were Southwest or American or others had so many cancellations, in some cases thousands of cancellations over the course of a weekend. They said it was because they couldn't get people um, to those flights. And there have been a lot Lot of things blamed bad weather and different things. But I don't remember as many instances like this pre-pandemic. What what happened? What's different? Are the airlines not staffed enough? Because that was my expectation that, you know, I thought we were using taxpayer money to keep people on the payroll so we wouldn't run into problems like this.
3: Becky, if we had not had the payroll support program, we'd be in a world, world of hurt. We would not be able to meet this demand at all. The fact of the matter is that comparatively, uh, I know this for sure at American, that there are more flight attendants per Uh, flight hour than there were pre-pandemic. And they have hired some flight attendants. We've had some classes graduate. We had all of the flight attendants come back who were sent home in March of 2020, and they just graduated and are now out on the line. Um, So we do have more staff than we had before, but it's an issue of how the airlines were forecasting. And previously, they were counting on people picking up those trips and those overtime hours. And that is just not happening today. Now, what American did and some of the others have done, and some have been baked into the contracts for many years, is they put in place this incentive pay. And over the holidays, people can make as much as 300 percent pay. So those incentives are a really good thing to have in place right now because people need a little extra reason to pick up those extra hours and come to work. And so I think we're in good shape.
1: I wanted to uh, ask you all about the state of vaccines and the mandate, uh, especially at American Airlines, which I believe has now delayed it again. Um There's still a question mark in this country whether we're going to not just need to vaccinate uh, or mandate vaccination to begin with, but mandate even boosters at this point, Sarah.
3: Yeah, so listen, the vaccine mandates are about getting people vaccinated, not firing them. And so everyone is working very hard to get education out to people. The holidays are going to be a good time for people to talk with their families about uh, what they need to do here. And that requirement date has been moved back to January 18th for federal contractors. The airlines who don't already have that firm date in place have moved with that contractor date. And uh, they're going to give people some time to think about it. Uh, you know, I'm with you, Andrew. We we got to make sure that everyone's getting vaccinated because this right. thing is just not going to end. I know you I know
1: you're with me, but I I, I know you're with me, <laughs> but I think you've fought the I think you've also fought the vaccine vaccine mandate for your for employees. Correct.
3: No that is not true. Um, And look at a Washington Post op-ed that I had back in September saying otherwise. Our role as the union is to make sure that the implementation is fair that people have the ability to make this decision and we put in place incentives we cut down the number of people who were yet to be vaccinated. We also made it possible for airlines to determine who was and who wasn't so we can focus where those people are still making decisions. And then what we said was the mandates are the employers right. And all we need to do then is make sure that any of the accommodations and the process are fair and consistent for every single uh, employee. But no, we have not fought the vaccine mandates at all. And in fact, we've supported them.
1: Okay. Uh, Sarah, we got to run. I have one uh, personal question of interest. I was just on a flight, not an American flight. And there was a debate about uh, whether someone who didn't have their mask on, but then they looked at the, the, the attendant and the attendant had it below the nose and everybody thought, well, you can't even ask the other person to put it on because the attendant doesn't have it on. What do you Yeah, we have to
3: model good behavior, but you're saying that was a non U S airline. So, you know, I don't have a lot of control over that. But what I would say is that flight attendants, everyone looks to flight attendants for the cues about what to be doing. And flight attendants have to be modeling good behavior and so showing everyone else how to do it. So that's what we're there to do. And I would say that that is a pretty big anomaly that you experienced there, Andrew.
1: Okay. thanks so much. Appreciate it. Always good to see you. Happy Thanksgiving.
0: And that's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. And, hey, to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, all you have to do is listen and follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow.
2: We are
1: clear. Thanks, guys.